Hi, everyone. Welcome to the CSPI podcast. I'm here with Mark Lutter of the Charter Cities Institute. Uh, Mark, how are you doing? Uh, good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, pl- uh, pleasure. Uh, so I've I've come across your work before. Uh, you sent me uh, a few podcasts that you've done before, so the 80,000 Hours podcast, and then of your own Charter Cities uh, Institute podcast, episode 13 with Curtis Lockhart. So in those podcasts, you really go into the basics of uh, – uh, Ch- Charter Cities Institute, what you guys are doing and the philosophy behind it. So I think this conversation, you know, instead of just a treading old ground, uh, I think, you know, I want to get a little bit more into the nuts and bolts of what you're doing, what the prospects are, where, you know, where, where the, where the exact geography and sort of logistics of setting up charter cities. Uh, but before we get all to all that, uh, can you just describe, uh, tell the audience who you are and how would you describe your career and what you're doing? Sure. So, um, I have a somewhat, I guess, unusual career path. Um, I grew up in Bethesda, Maryland, the son of distinguished bureaucrats. Um, I guess probably not that distinguished, medium distinguished. Um, and my undergrad was at the University of Maryland College Park in math. I worked a year for the Department of Energy as a consultant. It was um, living hell. I was in a cubicle farm in a basement. Uh-huh. And everybody around me, their goal was to become a Fed so they would have good benefits. And it just struck me as not a place where I wanted to spend my career, not a place for creativity, for building interesting things. Uh, I went to George Mason University, got my PhD in economics, worked a year for an asset management firm that was doing early stage investments in charter cities before kind of realizing that there was a space to um, develop a, I guess, a kind of serious institution to think about charter cities and to develop frameworks that could be applied. And so first, what is a charter city? A charter city is a new city with better laws. So think Singapore, Shenzhen, Hong Kong, Dubai, these all became world-class cities in two to three generations, in part because of good legal frameworks. They had other advantages in terms of location, in terms of good leadership, but the governance was a key um, input into their long-term success. And there are 75 million new urban residents annually, mostly in Africa and Asia. And so by creating um, institutions that allow them to engage with the global economy, we believe it's possible to lift tens of billions of people out of poverty. Will these become as successful as Singapore, Shenzhen, Hong Kong, Dubai? Probably not. But even if you become half or a third as successful, right, that effectively means going from, let's say you're starting at 1000 per capita income to a per capita income of ten or $20,000, which is a, just a monumental increase and a, a substantial um, improvement for human well-being. And so the Charter Cities Institute, we work um, in part, and I don't really like this word, but I haven't come up with a better one, uh, as a think tank. And so we have events, we have papers. What we see ourselves as doing is really catalyzing the charter city space. There's a lot of interest, there's a lot of excitement, but there's not that much know-how in terms of what does it actually mean to translate these high-level ideas to things on the ground. And so, for example, last year we published charter cities, uh, we published model legislation. We're currently working in um, one country uh, and have uh, early conversations in, I guess, three other countries about what it would mean to apply that legislation. We are developing a governance handbook, a step-by-step guide to creating a new governing structure from scratch. We anticipate um, that's already been used by one charter city development in Honduras, and we anticipate that being used by a handful more in the next two to three years. So not just doing kind of high-level think tank stuff, but really developing concrete ideas, policies, legislation for what it means to uh, build a charter city on the ground. And then additionally, we work with some charter city developments on the ground uh, to help them 
uh, figure out like how to best execute their plans, how to engage local stakeholders, how to raise funding, uh, et cetera, things like that. Yeah. So there's uh, in your report report that you recently released, there's uh, two projects you talk about, right? That you're involved in. Can we talk about them? So one of them is called Inimba. In Inimba. How do you, how do you pronounce that? Uh, Inimba Economic City. Yeah. Can you talk about sort of where that is in its development and how you guys are helping and what the vision is? Sure. So that is a new city development in Abia State, Nigeria. They have acquired 10,000 hectares. For reference, San Francisco is about 10,000 hectares. So mm-hmm. this is a massive, massive development. Um, they we they won our Charter Cities Business Plan Contest, which we had about two years ago. We helped them draft internal regulations. Uh uh, they have special who, economic. Who, who's them? Who was applying? The Nigerian government? The, or the state no, government? so it is a private uh, company that is building it. The guy who's running it, his name is Daro. He uh, uh, made money in the Nigerian real estate market. And then he told his kids, hey, I'm going to spend your inheritance trying to build a city. And that's what he did. The Nigerian state and national government both have equity stakes. But the day-to-day management of the project is led by a private team. Um, and there we have engaged the private team. We help draft internal regulations. Nigeria has a good, but not great special economic zone regime. So we drafted internal regulations that could help, uh, give the city because we thought like the the Nigerian special economic zone regime is catering to industrial parks. So if you want to build an industrial park, the SEZ regime is great. But if you want to build a city, there's a lot of other elements that go into a city that are not in an industrial park. And so we uh, try to then draft their internal regulations to be more in line with what set of authorities they would need as a city. Unfortunately, the Nigerian government basically stripped out 80% of our recommendations. So they were not put into practice. We also were involved in the process when they solicited RFPs for uh, a variety of different um, partners. And we helped review the RFPs and and did things like that. So kind of just um, helping out a bit where, where we can, but I think our, our kind of primary expertise is governance, how to think about governance on a city level in a way that can set the stage for long-term economic development. Uh, you said the Nigerian government stripped out 80% of what you recommended. Well, what did they have a problem with and what, what were they willing to let you go ahead with? So we were not directly involved in those conversations. We helped the drafting and then we gave it to the um, uh, Inyemba Economic City team and we saw the uh, result, which was, um, I, I, I do not remember the specifics. I was, uh, my team was primarily involved with the drafting. It was some somewhat minor stuff in terms of business registry that we got to keep. But most of the stuff in terms of devolved city level autonomy, we did not get to keep. This Nigerian city, um, where is uh, where is it in progress? I mean, are buildings up? Are, is anyone living there? You know, so no. So what they're the stage they're at? They've acquired the land. They have special economic zone status. They're currently doing their phase one um, fundraising. Uh, so they're looking at um, development banks. So like the IFC or the African Development Bank organizations like that um, to uh, uh, invest. And we, 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 we haven't really kept in very close contact with them. Our last engagement with them was a few months ago. So I don't know exactly what the status is uh, today, but they're looking to raise a few hundred million dollars to do the phase one build out, which would basically be the a kind of starting industrial park, as mm-hmm. well as regional transportation linkages to make sure it's, it's, it's engaged with the kind of regional economy. 
Yeah, so it's basically just a guy owns land. It's sitting there, and you know they're in the process of getting the money to to develop it, right? Pretty much. And then the other one is uh, Nakwashi, and that sounds a little bit more further along. So can you can you talk about that? Sure. So Nakwashi was the first project that we engaged. Um, it is uh, outside of Lusaka, the capital of Zambia. It is um, uh, a they they have thirty one hundred acres. Uh, and they're building a city for a hundred thousand residents. Uh, the land is owned. They have a slightly different financing strategy where, uh, and Yimba economic city is doing debt financing. Um, and Kwashi is doing basically kind of pay as you go. So if you want to buy a lot, you are on a payment plan and you do payments every month for five years until the plot is yours. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they use that, those, the, the revenue from that payment plan to build up the infrastructure including they've built a reservoir, um, roads, uh, uh, water, sewage. Um, they're using solar panels for the houses, so there isn't really a grid in the traditional sense. Uh, but that is the they, – they, they currently have um, paved, I think, I don't know, 10, 15 kilometers of roads. Um, and they don't have permanent residents. They're doing a handful of programs, like they did an artist-in-residence program. They're doing a hackers-in-residence program trying to get people to um, uh, kind of see that the the city is growing to, to, to jumpstart that initial demand. So Lusaka currently, it's the capital of Zambia. I believe their population is about 5 million, but it's growing quite rapidly. African cities have these tremendous growth rates in terms of population. Mm-hmm. And so this is in the natural growth path of a city. And you can imagine over time, the, the build out occurring there. Um, but right now, Zambia is in the middle of a um, like economic crisis. Uh, and so because of that, I think things have slowed down a little bit for the development because um, people are typically don't buy large uh, assets when there's a lot of economic uncertainty in the air. Yeah, sure. That makes uh, that makes sense. So, I mean, like, what about and what about uh, Prospera? I mean, I like many people. I came across uh, Scott Alexander's post about it. Are you guys involved with that? And where is that in its development? Yeah, so we're not directly involved in Prospera. I know the team quite well. Um, it seems to be doing well. They raised uh, funding about a year ago, um, a, a kind of a Series A equivalent. They have, I think, about fifty acres, and they're trying to buy another seven hundred acres. Uh, and they're targeting mostly remote work. Um, so getting Hondurans and thinking them up with American companies. And they're looking at, for them, the next phase is to build out a residential development. What is the demand for re- residences, et cetera? Uh, how much interest would there be there? It's on a beautiful island. This is kind of one of the key, um, I guess, two threads of charter cities that I see, where one of these threads is... Um, focusing on uh, how to accelerate growth in kind of low-income countries. Uh, And, well, I guess maybe a better way to frame it is there's the Shenzhen model and the Dubai model, Mm -hmm. where the Shenzhen model basically took a bunch of poor Chinese peasants, moved them to a city, gave them um, uh, low-wage manufacturing jobs, and then they grew the supply chain. They, They moved up the supply chain over time. Till today, when Shenzhen is a relatively wealthy city, um, even by global standards, I think per capita income, there's about 30,000. So it's not wealthy by American standards, but by global mm-hmm. standards, it's, it's, it's quite successful. Um, and the key there is like the original people were basically poor Chinese peasants. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at Dubai, right, Dubai, it's only like, I don't know, 8% Emirati. 
and most of the the, the workers there are basically European, uh, and they attracted a bunch of knowledge workers to create um, uh, value to engage with the economy. They also imported a lot of uh, Southern Asians, uh, Filipino workers who typically do the more manual labor. Um, but those workers are not really benefiting from the substantial increase in economic activity like the workers in Shenzhen benefited. And so broadly, I think there are these kind of two, I don't know, tracks where one focuses on how do we accelerate uh, catch up growth for people who are at the bottom of the pyramid? And then two is how do we accelerate uh, innovation for people who are already um, uh, closer to the top? And I think both are valid approaches. Uh, and um, But at Charter Cities Institute, uh, we think that from our perspective and where there's the most uh, value add as well as the highest demand for a public good, it's really creating the framework for people closer to the bottom of that pyramid. Um, and so Prospera, for example, they're doing remote work mostly for Hondurans. And the Hondurans doing remote work are um, not wealthy by American standards, but they tend to be relatively wealthy by average Honduran standards. And so uh, that uh, is, um, I think, something that it would be interesting to see how that plays up and how that scales, combined with the fact that I, I expect remote work to increasingly change living ar arrangements. And so it's quite possible that these new model developments, model towns, model cities for remote work end up uh, 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 taking off in a way that um, might be a little bit hard to to predict now. Yeah, I mean, but is is that a real uh, dichotomy between uh, you know have helping sort of a city that lifts up uh, the poorest and a city that uh, caters to the wealthy? Because you mentioned the uh, South Asian workers in uh, in uh, Dubai, right? They, I mean, they're they're benefiting, right? They're much better off than they would be in uh, in Bangladesh or India or wherever they're coming from. So um, they're they're, I think they, they are benefiting, they are better off, but the question is, are they better off? Like, if you take a snapshot of those workers 20 years ago and compare them to now, they're probably about equal, right? Their, their living standards have not substantially increased over the last 20 years. You take a snapshot of the average um, Shenzhen uh, citizen resident no. 20 years ago and you compare them now, they're much better off. And so that's the distinction that I think is, is important to draw. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, man, I, I guess the question is, I mean, I have a question. Is there, has this been, um, you know, do you really have the, the proof of concept yet, right? Because I, you have uh, examples in your report on planned cities. So you have, you know, you have the czar doing it. You have the Chinese central government doing it. You have the UK um, and Hong Kong and then, uh, uh, having Hong Kong as sort of a planned city. And then you have uh, Dubai, which I think is, you know, a tribal system that's, you know, the, of, of, uh, of sort of governance or, or culture that I don't think is going to be replicated anywhere. Uh, you know, Prospera doing it in Nigeria. This seems to be fundamentally different. How confident are you that these experiences uh, can translate into, into what you guys are trying to do in the developing world? Yeah, I mean, it depends on how strictly you define proof of concept with a broad definition. It's like, right, city-states have been a fundamentally unit of human structure and human organization, human governance, um, longer than the nation-state. Uh, on the other hand, as you rightly point out, there are a lot of circumstances that are different where Dubai is a, right, it's a tribal society. The, the joke is the, the Dubai the Emirates family office is very effective. Um, uh, uh, China has a very long history of statehood. The Communist Party is arguably one of the most kind of effective organizations in the world today. Um, mm -hmm. How do you translate that to places that have deep ethnic divisions 
where their the governance is very poor, where they might have much lower human capital? And the answer is it's it's very difficult. Uh, and what we are trying to do is to tease out what are the core elements of these and develop a generalizable framework with these core elements that can then be adopted to different circumstances. Um, one other example uh, in Honduras is uh, Ciudad Morazan, which is um, being built uh, kind of starting uh, as a industrial park with some residential units. They have um, ambitions to grow. The, the phase one is 10,000 uh, units or 10,000 for, for 10,000 um, uh, can, can house 10,000 individuals. And so this is a small town um, with a basically better legal regulatory system than the rest of Honduras, but it can uh, might kind of kick the butt of the local government to start responding to the demands of the citizens a bit more, right? It creates this, this uh, uh, feedback loop that is often not present in, in governments. And I'm quite optimistic about the project because I know the CEO and he is very, very competent and very, very good at executing. Um, so, right, what does that mean for Nigeria or for uh, Zambia or for other countries where they're doing it? And it's, it's. I mean, I can't say with certainty that this is going to work, but as you can probably guess, I mean, I've dedicated my life to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and given the kind of experiences that I've had in the last three, four years, and given the momentum that feels to be built up, I am reasonably confident that this will work at least in some instances and those instances will have a substantial impact on the, um, uh, uh, I guess, living standards of the people in the, who are residents of the city as well as their kind of regional vicinity. Yeah. I mean, and I, and I like your sort of the honesty that, uh, you know, sort of uh, you present with which you present these things. So the, uh, you know, you say, I think you've said it more than one occasion, you know, are we going to have another Shenzhen? Probably not. You know, that's a, that's a unique, uh, you know, that's a, that, that, that's a unique sort of development in the way that uh, uh, the, the entirety of China developed. Uh, you know, you, that's sort of a best case scenario. You would never have any right to hope for that, <laughs> no matter what you're doing. Uh, but can people's lives get better? Can they have better governance? Yeah, that, that you know, that strikes me as uh, yeah. And I think in one way also to frame it, Honduras currently per capita income is about twenty five hundred dollars a year if it's not adjusted for purchasing parity power. Um, El Salvador per capita income is about $7,500 a year. Uh-huh. So most people think of Central America and it's like Central America. Maybe you think of Costa Rica because they've got nice beaches, but right, like Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, it's all like mixed together without realizing that there are like pretty substantial differences in standards of living in these countries. And so, okay, if you get a charter city in Honduras, will it become like El Paso, Texas? Um, uh, probably not. Like, but could it become El Salvador? Right, that might not even register on most Americans' radar because it's not that big of a change. It's not that big of an impact on the life on our lives. But if you have a city of a hundred thousand people or five hundred thousand people, for them that is literally a three x increase in income, and a three x increase in income is just like it's it's transformational for their lives. Yeah, I mean, I think you're doing you're you're doing work that. You know, the industrialization, you know, urbanization, I mean, these, these are funny concepts because even when they objectively improve people's living standards, uh, people sometimes often feel like things are worse. So people move to the cities, uh, poverty becomes more visible. And then people look at this and they say, you know, oh, man, the, the, you know, the uh, life on the farm must have been so idyllic. You know, you look what you look what you've done to that modernization. <laughs> and so there's there's a possibility, even if you succeed, you know, there, there's not there could be, you know, a, not just a lack of gratitude towards you, but a lack of appreciation 
appreciation uh, to you know what you've done and you know, the the idea that you're going to sort of uh, pro- have a proof of concept for other regions of countries to uh, to emulate that you know that's sort of the goal. So do you worry about that? Um, not a lot. I mean, it is a somewhat awkward position in the sense that we are we we are asked um, on more than one occasion if like charter cities are neocolonialism, for example. Um, and we are, I mean, the office is, I think about half American, half, um, other, uh, and we are working primarily in the global South. And because of the, I guess, political delicacies of doing that, we have this thing where one, we prefer working with local partners who are from the regions, um, that the developments are occurring in. Uh, and then two is we also don't like aggressively, um, I think it's important to promote the Charter Cities brand broadly, but we don't try to, um, like, I, I think, I mean, like we're, we're, we're trying to do promotion kind of over the next, like, I don't know, two to three years relatively aggressively. But after that, the goal is to, like, fade into the background a little bit and mm-hmm. to, right, like, let other people take credit. I mean, if you do good things, like, it doesn't really matter. And I'm um, confident enough in kind of my own ability to not need to, right, be associated with every little thing. And so there is this uh, dynamic of, all right, how do we make sure that there is the spread of these ideas while uh, uh, kind of working with local parties and working with local actors to ensure that there is um, kind of understanding of the local conditions and representation of their um, interests. Then in addition to that, uh, yeah, I think some people will definitely move to cities and see worse things happen. Some people will see incomes and like rise, but still see, uh, think of bad things. If you read the history of the U S for example, what is arguably the greatest period of kind of American like innovation is Mm -hmm. the 1870s. And like everybody who lived through it hated it because there was deflation going on at the time. So everybody felt they were getting poorer, even though this was when like there were department stores for the first time when like railroads really started to become like a major thing in people's lives. Um, despite these like massive innovations that happening, people felt that they were poorer because of deflation. And so it's generally remembered in uh, a lot of these books as like this, this really bad time, depression, blah, blah, blah. When you actually kind of go and examine how productivity rises, uh, the, the increases in productivity, they were quite substantial. So I don't know. I'm not like, yes, some people might have similar experiences, but uh, ultimately, you know, I, I don't know. I'm a, a, I don't know, economic something or other. And I tend to think that like the the living standards ends up um, outweighing most people's like experience of like, Oh, the the poverty is a little bit more visible or, Oh, I feel poor because of deflation, even though my, I'm actually much richer than five years ago. I think the much richer part is, is more important than the like slightly feeling poorer part. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I agree, I agree with that. The problem is the the feeling part sort of sometimes becomes politically salient, right? And that and that influences what you can or can't do. Yeah, um, and that's I think one of the main challenges of charter cities is building up the political right. They're, they're a business problem in the sense that they need to be economically sustainable, but they are a political problem in the sense that you need buy in from a bunch of different stakeholders, and um, effectively managing those different stakeholders is key and. I when I think about managing the stakeholders, I I do not think worry about the like I don't know. I, I my, my operating assumption is if the incomes are growing, everybody will be kept relatively happy. There is a risk where right people's expectations rise once their living standards rise, and so then even if you have a small pullback, it's kind of like Bitcoin. It's like 
oh, Bitcoin dropped from $50,000 to $40,000. And it's like, yes, but like six months ago, it was $10,000. So is that a big deal? Um, and so, but there is the salience to the drop where a lot of people experience that and forget about the previous gains that I think is a political risk that charter cities do need to, to take into account. Yeah. Yeah. That comment about Bitcoin, I think if people are listening to this a few years down the line, it's going to be dated. I don't know in which direction it's either going to be much higher than what we're, the prices we're talking about or much lower. So, you know, that's yet to be determined. Uh, so one thing, I mean, that's uh, jumped out of me from your materials is you say in your report that ideally the charter city handles everything except criminal law, international treaties, and the constitution. And the first of these criminal law jumped out of me, jumped out at me. So, you know, even within American inner cities and, you know, some of these developing countries, particularly in Latin America, America, and I assume in, in much of Africa too, that the statistics aren't as uh, uh, aren't as easy to find. Uh, crime is a huge issue, right? I, I see. I sort of see it as a precondition for establishing peace and prosperity. And some of these countries in uh, Latin America, you know, are just have the murder rates that are through the roof. So the government doesn't seem particularly good at handling the crime issue. And so you're trying to build cities. If you're going to go try to build cities, and you're not going to take any role in uh, law enforcement, um, you're going to have to rely on this government that doesn't do a good job at, at it. Is this, is this potentially a problem? Yeah, I think that's a good point. And maybe some clarification behind that thinking is important. The reason we choose not to focus on criminal law is because it tends to be um, a little bit easier to say, hey, look, we want um, a different tax rate or a different business registry. People tend not to view that as a core, like, like my government, my nationality is defined by our business registration process, right? Mm -hmm. Like nobody really cares. People do tend to think um, a little bit more like my government is defined by how we think about murder, how we think about rape or how we think about abortion or something like that. And so it tends to be a little bit more politically salient, which is why we generally recommend not um, engaging with it. I think, as you rightly mentioned, some countries do have very violent crime rates. And so if you do want to develop a successful city, you do um, want to figure out how to influence that. You could influence that. I guess, indirectly without uh, um, having a prosecutorial body, that could be something that is just, okay, you treat it a little bit as a gated community, where if you live in the city, right, then the the, the you have cameras whenever you enter that um, know your license plate and that you threw. If you're visiting the city, you stop and you need to get a, a, a pass. And then you have in public spaces, uh, cameras, and that way, if there is violent crime, you are able to very quickly identify the perpetrator and turn them over to the, the local police. Um, is it possible local police fail to prosecute or are corrupt? Of course, that's possible. Um, and that is, a, I think, a local trade-off. In some cases, there might be the political will that allows you to get a prosecutorial authority. If so, that could easily be justified in, in some circumstances. Um, uh, but given that the real estate developer, which is highly influential, on the charter city government is a for-profit actor, right? I expect there will also be substantial pushback to giving um, criminal law uh, uh, over to a body that is substantially influenced by for-profit actors, which is why it is a tricky political situation where um, in a very violent country, I wouldn't be opposed to at least poking to see if it's possible for the charter city to have some of that authority. But um, um, it's, it's, uh, um, not something that I, I don't know is 
uh, would always be, I guess, politically feasible or, or the first thing that you might want to ask for. Yeah. So, so yeah, I guess it's, it's about aligning incentives. So I guess in, in certain, I mean, in certain violent cities, you know, within the U S across the world, yeah, like there can be gated communities and those, those can work. I went to the uh, law school at the university of Chicago and it was a little bit like that. You, you walk a few blocks uh, down uh, uh, south of campus and it gets really violent. Uh, But you go to campus and there is a security guard on every, every, uh, every corner. Um, there's a private uh, U- U- uh, University of Chicago police, right? Why doesn't you know the, they do that for the whole city of Chicago? I guess it's expensive, you know, whatever. <laughs> like uh, U Chicago has, you know, is small enough and, and rich enough that it can do that. And so, you know, I, so we don't have like crime on campus as much. And I guess, yeah, I guess that that could be a way to to solve the solve the problem. Yeah, I think I think you convinced me. I think that 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 was probably something I was really skeptical about. But you know, everything you say, uh, everything you say makes sense. Um, and so you've been, you've been in uh, DC for how long? My life. Oh yeah, that's right. You, you're, you're, you're an offspring of bureaucrats. That's right. So, so how long, how long have you been, how old is the uh, Charter Cities Institute? So we're about three and a half though. I guess in two months we'll have to start saying four years. I founded it October, 2017. Okay. And what, what is the, you know, you talked a little bit before about uh, Paul Romer and the old model of charter cities. Um, and there have been attempts, right? They, they've failed. Can you talk about, you know, some of the uh, attempts that have failed and sort of what you've learned from them and what, what you hope to do differently? Sure. So Romer um, uh, originated the idea of charter cities, or at least the kind of modern iteration of it. Uh, he gave a TED talk in 2009, I believe. And Paul Romer, he won a Nobel Prize in economics three years ago. Uh, he was chief economist at the World Bank, right? One of the best economists in the world. And so when he gives his TED talk, there's a lot of interest. There's a lot of incitement. There's a lot of enthusiasm. He proposes a high income country, for example, Canada, act as the guarantor or effectively the administrator of the charter city in a low income country like Honduras. He went to Madagascar, was meeting with the Madagascar president. There seemed to be buy-in. And then there was a coup that was unrelated to him, but nevertheless, obviously, through a wrench in the plans. He went to Honduras. Honduras passed legislation. Um, and then there was a falling out uh, with him and the Honduran government. Uh, and he left. The Honduran legislation was ruled unconstitutional. Uh, a year and a half later, um, similar legislation is enacted that proves to be constitutional. And... Uh, 10 years after that, or eight years after that, then a, I don't really call them charter cities, Prospera and Ciudad Mortazan are both too small to be cities. They're more charter towns in a few years or in 10 years, 15 years, they might be cities if they reach kind of baseline population thresholds. But I think if you're under 5,000 people, under 10,000 people, it's not, it's not really a city, right? It's, it's, it's a, it's a settlement, it's a town, it's a village, whatever you want to call it. Um, so what did we learn from those, uh, I think one thing to learn is, right, Paul Romer managed to generate a lot of attention and interest and excitement. Um, And so there is a lesson to be learned that I think celebrities, um, and like he was sort of a celebrity economist, can be used to leverage charter cities because they help overcome these coordination and credibility problems. Two is not to put all your eggs in one basket, either in one person or in one country. Um, Once Romer left and lost public interest, all of the momentum died, and it's taken the better part of a decade to rebuild that momentum. I currently think our um, I, the movements on the ground momentum is much stronger, even though the high level kind of I don't know hype momentum is much weaker than it was uh, with Romer. Mm-hmm. Uh, three is yeah, not to put all of your eggs in one country, and 
perhaps this has been proven a little bit wrong. Um, I, I saw a handful of projects die in Honduras in the mid 2010s. Uh, now that there are several projects that are successful in Honduras, it appears that it was a good bet to focus a lot of resources there. But I was a little bit worried uh, um, that that was a black hole. And it is important to make relationships, make partnerships with a lot of projects in a lot of different places, uh, given that particularly in the stage of negotiating concessions with the host country, the projects are quite high risk. And so figuring out how to de-risk them uh, is quite important. So, uh, so when, so I guess there's a political debate within Honduras and presumably other countries about these things. Is it a right versus left divide? Like, who like tends to be champions of charter cities and who tends uh, to be against them? Yeah, so I think it depends on the country. Uh, Honduras, like most of Latin America, follows a what a left-right divide that would be generally recognizable to the U.S. Mm. Their left tends to be more left, um, and their right tends to be more right. Um, but it's, it's still recognizable in Honduras. The right was generally supportive of charter cities and the left has been generally opposed. Um, uh, my kind of friends who lean libertarian in Honduras are, are very supportive. Well, the people who are pro opposed tend to be, um, activist types, protester types, anti-capitalism types, uh, et cetera. I suspect that that dynamic will be somewhat similar in much of Latin America, though perhaps not all. Um, there's one country where we are drafting legislation and the indigenous party controls the Congress. And we are looking to figure out how to ally with them um, because uh, while they tend to be much more left and much more socialistic, we the, the, the argument we plan to present is to say, hey, look, this allows you to get local governance. This allows you to get self-rule. Um, you can then uh, form whatever legal governing structure you want, even if, if it's substantially different from the state's governing structure um, that meets your needs and your demands. And perhaps that is a more socialistic governing structure, but I think communities should have the right to do that. Uh, and it's unclear whether this argument will win or not, um, but at least we believe it's uh, possible to get agreement with uh, groups that lean, lean more left in other parts of the world, um, Africa, for example, does not have a traditional left-right divide like um, the U.S. or Latin America does. Uh, we um, there, I mean, the, the objections tend to be uh, mostly focused around uh, economic sovereignty, um, fears of neocolonialism, um, as well as I think, for lack of a better way to describe it, like the, the but I, the, the primary barrier isn't the the critics. The primary barrier, I think, is just the lack of um, knowledge from the relevant stakeholders, and also the lack of a execution ability from the charter cities community. So if you go to a country and say, if you pass this legislation, I'll invest $100 million in the first five years, and after that, up to a billion dollars, if things go well, right, that will make a lot of countries have their ears perk up. Yeah. Um, but right now, the problem is uh, you very few, if any people could credibly do that, and nobody could meaningfully execute on it. Right. Like, how do you identify the land? How do you raise the capital? How do you get the light capital commit? How do you um, draft the regulations, et cetera? Right. Uh, this is just it, it takes a while for a new industry of merge for people to build up that muscle to understand what a charter city actually is. Like, what are the key skill sets you need? If you compare it to Silicon Valley, for example, right, every five years, the uh, the unicorn, the fastest growing unicorn has less time from like um, incorporation to a billion dollars. Why? Um, in part, because there is now all of this talent 
that is uh, exists that people know how to build companies in a way that they did not 20, 30 years ago. Um, right, the, the people did not know how to scale companies as rapidly 20, 30 years ago, just because the possible space for those companies was much more small, and therefore the possible talent pool was small. But now, because it, the, the talent pool, the capital pool, everything exists, you can scale companies much, much quicker than you used to be able to. Um, and we're in the, the analogous space as the charter cities uh, space is in, I don't know, right, like 1980 or 1970 in terms of the probably probably 1960 or 1970 right the the fairchilds um the what traitorous eight just leaving um uh to to start their own company um where you're just getting the kind of inklings of the initial industry uh where people are kind of still in the very early stages figuring out like how do you structure the deals how do you raise capital how do you talk to governments and there isn't that talent that exists to really be able to scale up at this time uh, have you being in DC? You're obviously trying to influence policy. Um, have you ever thought about the so the American uh, foreign aid budget, something like fifty billion a year? The fifty billion a year. The Pentagon does you know a lot of stuff, and you know it's seven hundred, eight hundred billion. Um, have you thought about, or have you made attempts to try to commandeer part of uh, the American uh, spending abroad to lift people out of poverty, and then see it and, and see whether you can uh, use it for something something approaching car- something that looks like charter cities. Yeah, um, we've thought about it. I wrote a paper a year ago, um, not really a paper, an op-ed more, that was Charter Cities as the response to Belt and Road, um, uh, which I think is still a generally valid point. Um, uh, What's her name? Uh, uh, Samantha Powers went to El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras like last week, Uh and she tweeted about it. And so I tweeted Uh her like, hey, I'll introduce you to some people building charter cities if you want. I mean, Uh obviously, she did not respond. Um, But uh, we have thought about it. And this is one of the challenges that we have to do is where to spend our time and energy. And um, what we try to focus on is what are the very easy short-term wins that we can get that we can go back to our supporters and demonstrate momentum, that we can build a community and build uh, help build some degree of traction on the ground. And influencing the U.S. kind of foreign policy or foreign aid establishment is very difficult. It's a lot of work and it's not my expertise. And so we've kind of danced around the edges of it, but haven't really fully engaged. We recently hired a head of partnerships. And so we are looking to um, push a lot harder on that margin over the next year or two. Uh, the way I kind of think about it is the last three, four years were more of creating the core idea of charter cities, right? We have model legislation, we have a model city charter, we have a team that can execute. And so now when a country approaches us and says, Hey, we want charter cities legislation, we're not doing it for the first time, right? We have that capacity built in. We need to, we need to still hire more people and build it out a little bit more, but like we have that ability if the U.S. government comes and says, hey, what is a charter city, right? We don't have to worry about drafting documents, et cetera. Like, we know what that is. Maybe we'll have to change some documents. But that fundamental underlying capacity exists. And so what we're trying to do is build out this, I don't know, like influence, engagement, capacity, whatever you want to call it, where then when institutions like, I don't know, USAID or maybe the African Union or the... Uh, like the, I don't know, the German government starts to feel guilty about not letting enough migrants, so they want to invest in Africa, then when they come to us, we have the materials, we have the know-how that uh, we are able to engage them. And we spent the last few years building up that know-how. And now the next step is really to hammer, start hammering down that engagement, figuring out who the allies are who are interested in these ideas, and then leveraging them, their interests, their resources to advance charter cities. 
Yeah, I mean, I know, I know a bit about American foreign policy. I mean, my impression is that, you know, a lot of things are, you know, a lot of policies are just very, very sticky. Um, it's very hard to change, you know, whatever we're doing at the moment. Is that is that your impression too thus far? Or do you, have, do you see reason for, for potential? Do you see uh, do you see reasons for encouragement? Is, is it better or worse uh, than what you would have expected? I don't know. I, I agree that most policies are sticky and difficult to change. I think we are in a period of substantial political uncertainty. So mm-hmm. I think the policies are probably easier to change than they were, I don't know, 30 years ago, where um, politicians are much more open to like, I don't know, slightly weird, slightly different ideas. Um, uh, And then two, the question is, on what level are you trying to change policies? Are you trying to get legislative action? Maybe it's just administrative action, right? And then what is the entryway? How do you get proof of concept? What does that look like? And at least with the U.S. government, particularly with charter cities, I don't have a clear idea of that. I don't have that mapped very well. We've so far stayed somewhat in the thought leadership space and haven't pounded super hard on it. Um, And part of it is, as you just described, it's unclear about what the returns for investment would be in terms of like, what is a realistic expectation about what we could get done if we spend, I don't know, $500,000 over two years knocking on doors. And I don't have that idea clear in my mind. And because of that, it's not an action I want to take. Um, like we can, again, poke around the edges, see if there's interest. If there's interest, we can double down and and figure out how to engage. But until that happens, it's it's something that I'm I'm just reluctant to spend a lot of time and energy pursuing. Uh-huh. And you you do have I mean you do have some kind of relationship with Brookings, is that right? Uh, not a formal one. Have you done what like what have you done with them? Conferences, papers, or something? Like I that? don't know that we've done anything with them. I mean, I know some of their researchers, but uh, we're 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 in the somewhat I don't know like the, the the term that we've been using for what we want to do over the next two years is prestige hacking where it's, it's, it's interesting. So our head of partnerships, um, it was like, we need an office phone. And I was like, you have a cell phone, right? <laughs> what, what is an office phone? Like I thought those don't exist anymore. And he says, when he goes to talk to embassies, right, then the embassies, basically executive assistant needs to call his executive assistant to arrange a meeting. And if they call him, then they begin to suspect that he's just a random guy in a suit and mm-hmm. doesn't actually, there isn't any meaningful organizational backing. Uh-huh. So in San Francisco, it's like, look, if you can create a website and you're reasonably smart and can articulate an idea, like even if you don't have anything, that's enough to bet on you. And these legacy institutions, at least with embassies, right, you need a office phone and an assistant or else you're not a real institution that's worth engaging. And um, uh, so that's just a, a uh, challenge in terms of how do we right create that, um, I guess, level of trust and how do we create that level of influence to start being able to change the conversation in that direction? Yeah. So, I mean, one thing, you know, I'm thinking about is, you know, the immigration issue. So people vote on it. I mean, people, uh, you know, tend to care a lot and it's a huge issue across, you know, just the entire Western world. I mean, there's a lot more uh, people who want to come to the West than there is the political uh, will to let them in. And, you know, I mean, it's, 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 you know, I think, you know, just watching our politics, it's sort of, 
it's a little bit sad, you know, how little uh, sort of flexibility it is. So like, you know, there'll be a border crisis and the Republicans will say, isn't this terrible? You have to get tough on the border and the Democrats will, you know, do whatever they do. And it just seems to be like this endless cycle. I mean, what well, you know, do, do you dream of like having a, pol- a political leader just stand up one day and be like, okay, say, imagine a Republican saying, I'm, you know, I'm against immigration. I have a solution. You know, they're all going to move to Prospera or something like that. I mean, do, do you do you think that that's like, you know, potentially... You, you could, you could potentially, you know, take what sort of political currents are are there and sort of do something constructive with it. I mean, is, is that is that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so one of our broad research projects, what we call like associating charter cities with clause areas. So we published a paper on charter cities and migration using the UN uh, framework. Uh, we published that like a month, six weeks ago, using the UN framework to think about like how can this you why would charter cities be better in terms of understanding right, the UN's goals and objectives than what they are currently doing. Um, we have written about how charter cities in Honduras could help alleviate the migrant crisis in the U.S. Uh, I think it is conceivable that within the next five years, a U.S. politician says, um, hey, like instead of giving uh, $100 million to the Honduran government, why don't we invest $100 million in this Honduran charter city and they seem to be doing a much better job at creating opportunities, at raising living standards, and mitigating the migrant crisis than the Honduran government is doing. Um, and I think that's definitely within the realm of possibility. And this is just like, how do we, like, to me, charter cities are an idea that have all of these second order impacts in terms of how people think about like climate, in terms of uh, governance, in terms of infrastructure, like almost any issue that's related to um, the global south. Charter cities have something to do with it. And so if charter cities can be tied to these issues and seen as part of a solution for these larger causes that have resources, that have people, they can, charter cities can animate a lot more of these resources, a lot more of these people, a lot more of these interests to help accelerate their development. So it is possible. I think it's possible in the US, US context. We've pushed a little bit on it, but not super hard, just because, again, it's 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 a lot of this is just kind of right time, right place. And I don't think it makes sense to spend a bunch of resources without having some of the other uh, kind of underlying uh, infrastructure in place. Yeah. Yeah. What I'm getting is, I mean, your resources are limited. And so you have to sort you know, ideally you would be focusing on all these things, you know, but yeah, there's only so much you can do. Uh, you know, one thing, you, one uh, thing you've talked about is uh, you are thinking about the developing world because there's so many people or uh, people are moving to cities, you know, in the next years and decades. Uh, so I've, I've heard you say that uh, in the first world, there's just not enough people to create a new, uh, to create a new charter city, but, it, but it's, it's also, I mean, it's relative, right? So the, 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 I mean, the advantage of doing it in the, in a developed country is potentially, you know, you could do it much better. You can have much, uh, uh, you can much, you can have much uh, more solid commitments uh, that you can rely on. And, you know, there are, and so you, it's harder to draw people right to your new location. But, you know, it's like the, the, the number of people moving is never fixed, right? It's a, it's a push-pull thing. It's an incentive thing. So potentially you could do it better and you could have uh, you could potentially get more people in the first world. Have you thought about that model for charter cities? Yeah, I have. So it's, it's a few things. One, um, as you mentioned, there is, I think, less demand, right? That's not to say no demand, but less demand. Uh, two is at least in low-income countries that are urbanizing rapidly, these new urban spaces need to be built anyway. So new urban spaces that are like actually new cities don't really need to be built in high income countries. They can be built, but they don't need to be built. 
Second is you're competing with, uh, I think it's much easier when you have people moving from rural areas to cities than when you're competing with existing cities. So if you to somebody in Austin or somebody in Miami or somebody in SF or San Francisco and say, hey, I'm building a new city, come, they'll be like, oh, what restaurants are there? None. You'll be one of the first thousand residents. What yeah. supermarket is there? Right. We're trying to convince Trader Joe's in three years to open a branch. Right. Like that's it, the, the amenities aren't there. They're just not very attractive. And then second is the regulatory arbitrage isn't as strong. If you think about um, getting better laws in low income countries, that could conceivably lead to 10x differences in income over a 30 or 40 year period. Um, that's not out of the question and like is, is, is arguably a little bit conservative. If you think about uh, a charter city in a high income country, that might lead to, uh, I don't know, 50x increase in income over 20 years, right? So it's, it's, it's not zero, but it's not nearly as large as in uh, uh, lower income countries. And I think third is uh, high income countries have just placed tremendous barriers on large infrastructure projects. Um, sometimes related to environmental review, right? NEPA in the US is very stringent environmental review. Um, that makes mega infrastructure projects very difficult. But you see this around the world in Europe, um, et cetera. And so the ability to get the political buy-in to execute on a mega infrastructure project is arguably harder in a high-income country than in a low-income country. What about well, what about the medium? What about the medium-income countries? I mean, the the, the ones the, the, there are some that are stable. They're urbanizing. I'm thinking of uh, you know I don't know if this is where I work. I'm just sort of shooting off the top of my head. But a lot of Middle East, a lot of Central Asia. Um, you know, they're non often non democracies, which could actually give you know a bit of uh, stability to the project. You know, the one I mean, it's not a problem. So, Be yeah. Sorry, yeah. Ahead. Any, any, any thought of that? Middle East, I'm generally pessimistic on. I, I think the price of oil is going to be less than in 30 years than it is today. And that is going to lead to a lot of conflict in the Middle East and a lot of drying up of the wealth that they have there. Right. Uh, Neom, which is the charter city, basically. Yeah. Right. It's it's uh, King um, MBS's uh, kind of new region development. Yeah. Right. It's this, I think, heroic modernization effort where he's trying to save his country from the post oil world. Right. And it is like it, it is it is heroic if you look at so many countries that just like dither their thumbs. Um, but it's probably going to fail uh, just because like the, the, the order the, the magnitude of the, the task is so great that it's very difficult to imagine a future that it's 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 meaningfully successful. Um. I think the, the Central Asia, I would be much more bullish about, right? Central Asia, uh, particularly with Belt and Road, um, with uh, Chinese European uh, rail infrastructure coming online. Uh, you have things like the Korgos Gateway, uh, which is on the Kazakh Chinese border. That's basically a dry port and a new city development that's coming. Um, that is something I'd be um, much more interested and open to. And I'd be happy to have those conversations. I've done a small bit of consulting work in Kazakhstan. Uh, uh, but right so far, we haven't had any strong leads there. And so um, we're focusing mostly on on uh, Latin America and Africa until we get other kind of places that seem to, to want our expertise.
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Kazakhstan is an interesting, uh, is an interesting case. When I was, um, when I was on the job market, I was still thinking about getting an academic job in political science. You'd see these job listings and it'd be like, you know, a university in Kazakhstan and the pay would be like $160,000 or something, which is, you know, very high for an entry level, uh, you know, for assistant professorship. And there was, you know, but I guess it's, it's hard to draw people because not a lot of people want to get up and move to Kazakhstan. So like on the forums, it was like sort of a joke, you know, you just go to the university of Kazakhstan or, or whatever. Uh, so there seems to be serious, you know, government investment in, 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 so, in some things. Um, but yeah, it, it's really, you know, isolated from, from a lot of the rest of the world. You don't have, you know, the ports. I mean, that part, the part of the world is, you know, poor. Well, not, not Kazakhstan as much because they have oil. Uh, but a lot of that region is poor, you know, for, for a reason. The geography, I guess, is, is not that great. Um, so you, you, you have a PhD in economics from uh, George Mason, right? Yep. And uh, what year did you graduate? Oh, 2015, <laughs> 2016, 2016, I think. Yeah. And most people go in, most people go get a PhD. They want to become academics. Was that, was that ever on your radar? I wanted to, too. I wanted to fight the battle of ideas and change the world for the better. Yeah. And what happened? You just, you just, you, were you disillusioned with academia? Did you just, uh, yeah, academia is pretty dumb. Uh, it's after you like I don't know I went there reading like Mises Hayek I was like wow yeah. here are these big debates that influence society and then you get to graduate school and it's like how do I learn a technique that can measure the change in whatever in this small area that nobody cares about and then maybe in 20 years after I get tenure and I build up a reputation I can think interesting thoughts and talk about interesting ideas yeah and that was not very attractive George Mason is a wonderful place intellectually but as a PhD econ program it's mid-tier um, right. Very few George Mason graduates get to teach at research university universities. And I was not a good graduate student. I'm a mediocre economist. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I kind of rolled the dice and decided to, uh, pursue charter cities, which was a few rough couple of years kind of coming out of graduate school, but seems to have worked out since. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think I agree with you. You say academia is dumb. Yeah, I, I have a you know sort of a similar experience. I went in studying international relations. I was interested in like World War One, World War Two. Like, why has war declined? You know, the big questions. And you're sort of you know pushed into you know have some statistical model that can explain like you know slight increase in uh you know military spending or you know what you know uh, what determines you know support for uh for war under this circumstance or that circumstance just really really i mean they make it you know uh you know it seems like similar in economics they make it as small as possible um yeah. and then you know if you want to study like you know the, i think i think this i don't think this is unique to like academia per se i think almost all american institutions are and like professions uh, professions have become somewhat calcified and yeah. resistant to outsiders and built on this a degree of kind of internal run seeking and um, I, 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 any anywhere that doesn't have a basically relatively quick feedback loop yeah. has. So if you look at a lot of, I don't know, professions as well that aren't academia, um, and we've obviously seen this with the public health profession over the last year, last eighteen months, they've basically failed on every margin. Even though they're not like some of them are in academia, but a lot of them aren't. They're in government or they're in private institutions, and literally all of them failed. Not not all of them, but like I don't know, eighty percent of them failed. And so it's, I don't think it's unique to academia per se, but at least given my experience there, it was particularly prominent and particularly discouraging of my, I don't know, of, of what I consider to be my interests. 
Yeah. You, well, you sound somewhat disillusioned with the uh, uh, with the sort of Western institutions more generally, not just academia. Is, is, is that is part of your you know is part is part of what draws you, I guess, to to the uh, Charter City mission that you see maybe a bit more dynamism in the developing world. I mean, I see what you write about China and its development, and it's absolutely you know amazing. And you know, is is there a part of you who just thinks you know here is just sort of a space where you can try new things? We're just too calcified. We're just you know too stagnant to really do much, and we sort of need you know the rest of the world to experiment and try to move us forward a little bit um i actually see charter cities and what might be described as like progress studies broadly as like a little bit distinct um there's definitely like overlap uh but agglomeration is really really hard um america has fantastic agglomeration uh what does that mean right like where are all the best companies coming from we produced mrna vaccine Right. We we have a lot of sectors of the economy that are fantastic. Right. Uh, China is still a middle income country per capita incomes like ten or twelve thousand dollars a year. Um, the urban areas on the coasts are up to like, I don't know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars. The rural areas are still quite poor. Um, they're industrializing. Uh, their organizational infrastructure is much better than America's. But in terms of pushing the frontier, it'll probably be another decade before they're like meaningfully, I think, competing with us if they are ever able to do right. They face significant structural challenges in terms of demographics, in terms of energy security and food security. And so I like there there is this if you want to push the frontier, I think you basically need to be in America. Um, I had lunch with Tyler Cowen recently and he was like, OK, if you had the choice to go to. New Zealand or to go to Australia and spend the pandemic there, right? These were places that were basically open. They closed their borders and they had very few cases and you could go and have lunch with your friends. And he was like, I still want to do this. Why? Because like what you do in New Zealand, <laughs> um, right? The, the, the entire countries, I think it's under 10 million people. Um, like they're all, I'm sure they're all very nice, but they're, they're, New Zealand is not going to push the frontier, right? The U.S. is going to push the frontier and there are a lot of calcified institutions there are a lot of governmental failures, but agglomeration is really, really hard. And it's not something that you can just pick up and move elsewhere. And I think if you are seriously interested in pushing the frontier over the next 30 years, you should spend most of your time uh, in the U.S. figuring out what to do. And I think charter cities over the next 30 years are going to play a, a pretty small role um, in kind of meaningful technological innovation. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing I, I worry about, I mean, I think, I think you're, everything you say is, is, is right about the United States, you know, being good at these uh, big things, but I, you know, I worry about sort of a homogenization of institutions across country. So I think the way our epidemiologists, you know, the, the I think we, I, I think we failed, you know, in the pub, the public health response, similar to the way Western Europe failed. Right. Um, and I think there's just everything, you know, from the way we organize our economy to the way we organize, you know, our government. I mean, you look at the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, where I think we tried to sort of import like, you know, not even the American Constitution, but like a 21st century, you know, what American Constitution would look like with like gender quotas in parliament and, you know, stuff like that. Um, you know, and, and you know, the, the, the sort of best practices model of development um, where we, you know, try to, you know, we, we sort of have this idea of what uh, societies should be and we try to just incentivize it or push forward to the greater extent possible you know i see that as somewhat of a existential risk to humanity because you know there could be a problem where you need you know some kind of uh you know if we're all if we're all going to end if we, if we have some major challenge 
and we all sort of look the same and, you know, there, there's, you know, there's sort of this uh, across institutions, you know, we could fail in the exact same way and we could all be in trouble. So I guess for the way I look at it, I'm glad U.S. and China are like so different that there's these two superpowers and they're not just like sort of cop- carbon copies of each other. And I like to see, you know, more diversity more generally across the world. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's something I'm sympathetic to, but I don't think is actually going to happen. Um, I suspect, so in the Mark Andreessen interview, he did with, what, like, 6-3 Balkan war criminal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he mentioned that over the next 50 years, everybody's going to get weird in the Joe Heinrich sense, um, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic, because America media is dominant and will continue to dominate over the next 30, 50 years. Um Right. Even though like American power projection in terms of military authority is down. I mean, we saw countries like New Zealand have Black Lives Matter parades and New yeah. Zealand is not known for having a lot of um, black people or for uh, really. Right. They treated their indigenous people not great, but they, they didn't really have slaves. They didn't have any of this long history of um, uh, brutalism that the U.S. had. And so it shows this cultural hegemony that I suspect is relatively entrenched and with the new medium of the internet right this cultural hegemony is going to uh uh right like going to continue as the internet continues to eat the world um and so because of that like china as a old civilization as a rapidly industrializing power that has enough authority to resist um is one thing you see kind of what might be described as like I don't know, like tacit like resistance in some places, like uh, I don't know, right? Macron's uh, war on a uh, war on a uh, left wing uh, campus culture. Yeah, you mm-hmm. have that. You also have like Japan and South Korea, where there's this kind of facade of of Westernism, but there's this really deep culture underneath. You have Orban, who's really kind of attacking liberalism. So you do see some of these, I don't know, like outposts. But my feeling is that the general trend that's continued over the that's been the last like 20 years is likely to continue. Um, and I do know some people who are working on charter cities and sometimes they call them charter cities. Sometimes they call them other things um, explicitly with this like institutional revival perspective, like we're going to plant the seeds for a new civilization, blah, blah, blah. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical of, of that. Like it's, it's, I, I, I tend to think that we should focus most of our efforts on kind of reforming existing institutions. And um, uh, the way I, I see this is right. The, the current dominant like narrative is basically the, the, the wokes and what needs to be done. You won't win in a head on fight with them, but what you need to do is basically to create a new idea, a new culture that can peel off the next generation of elites and uh, create identity and values around that, that can end up kind of taking over um, governing institutions in the US um, and elsewhere that can then put forward a much more positive pro-humanity vision. And that uh, um, idea I see as probably like progress studies or something in that general vein. Uh, And so if I think about what like, I don't know, institutional revitalization looks like, it's Right, creating a entire movement around uh, progress that is similar to the progressive movement that ends up having substantial influence on American and other institutions and is really embedded in the basis of our thought. 
And so instead of first thinking like, how does this affect the environment or how does this affect race relations or gender relations? It is, does this lead to more innovation and better living standards for people? And um, having that be the the baseline. And I don't know, perhaps I'm just being overly optimistic. I'm not sure it's possible, but I, I don't think creating a new breakaway civilization is, is, is possible either. So I'm, I'm choosing to, to focus my, my efforts on uh, revitalizing what we have. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think your comparative advantage is not you know, necessarily to revitalize Chinese civilization. <laughs> you're, you're, an Amer- you know, you're American. And I, yeah, I, think, I think you're doing what, you know, along the lines of what you should be doing. Uh, as far as you know, the uh, ultimate triumph of Americanism, you know, I, I, think it, you know, I think it depends. I'm not as sold as you know, it, it's sort of that predetermined. I mean, by conservative economic projections, you know, in 30 years, China will have two or three times the economy. You know, it's not a very charming country to most of the rest of the world. But you know, a lot of things depend on, you know, whether systems are perceived to succeed or, or fail. Like communism once had a, uh, you know, wide appeal to elites all over the world and the system just didn't work right. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot will depend on how functional America is seen over the next few decades and, you know, whether China can keep up. Their growth, and you know, it doesn't mean there's going to be a, a, a scenification. Everyone's going to become, you know, speak Chinese and you know, try to be like the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, but it could get people thinking, you know, maybe there's maybe there's other ways to do things. Um, I think that's I think that's also possible. Yeah, I think that's it's possible. I think like the 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 relative decline of America will definitely threaten American prestige. I just think the American entertainment complex is so advanced. I like the Chinese might be catching up in twenty years. But they'll still be behind. I like. I, I think that the U.S. entertainment complex is still going to be like pretty dominant over the next twenty years, probably over the next thirty. I think the one interesting point that you did mention is um, that the withdrawal of American like I don't know power is going to leave basically regional power vacuums that are going to lead to the rise of uh, much of, of of institutional forms that have a lot higher diversity than the ones that were currently. Um, accepting an engagement. Yeah, about American cultural power, you know, I looked into this recently. So someone had said, you know, um, you know, so I was look I was thinking about Orban in Hungary. I just looked up like the top 10 20 mo- highest grossing movies in Hungary and they were like all American movies, right? They were like yeah. 18 American movies. But then I looked at China and they were actually all Chinese movies, right? Um, so there does seem to be, you know, a difference. And I think you get the same thing with India and Bollywood. I, my family's from the Middle East. They watch Turkish, uh, Turkish, uh, and Egyptian Turkish with, you know, uh, dubbed, uh, uh, sort of, uh, movies and, uh, and, uh, uh, like soap operas and Egyptian and Egyptian too. So you do have sort of, you know, these cultural, uh, even racial barriers, people who look, who look like themselves, you know, they want to see themselves on the screen. Do you think Uh, they're watching more or less than they were 20 years ago? Uh, they're probably, you know, they're yeah, they're certainly probably watching more American stuff. But uh, you know, I, I had satellite, you know, Arabic satellite TV in my house when I was growing up, and you know, I, so I, I've done a study abroad in Russia, so I, I have limited experience abroad. So I did study abroad in Russia, and a lot of the cartoons, a lot of the things on TV would be dub- would be dubbed just American stuff, right? Um, but the Arabic satellite TV, which I have experience with, you you wouldn't see that. I mean, it was they, they, it was all just they they would have like their version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. So there was you know this kind of uh, cultural diffusion. Um, but you know they're, they're they're a different culture. I mean the, the the way they you know like an American talk show about like relationships is not going to translate there. 
Uh, so, you know, that's the Middle East. And I think, you know, the cultural, you know, distance between uh, the West and China, you know, I think is even even larger. So, you know, like, if you look at the top 20 grossing movies in China, uh, you know, the last few years, you know, maybe they're watching more American movies, but, you know, it's like one instead of, you know, what used to be zero. Oh, uh, sure. And I, I, so I don't think the U.S. is go, co- going to culturally dominate China, right? They, one, can put up right barriers to movies i think they currently do have barriers to like amount of films that can be shown and they they have a sufficiently large internal market to develop a good um uh uh like their own internal movie industry what i'm kind of predicting is that u.s movies are basically probably going to dominate the rest of the world um and i think china which is the only real competitor is not going to seriously compete in terms of like broad cultural influence and so the test for this is to look at like Latin America, Africa, Middle East, India, et cetera. Like how many movies, uh, like what media do they consume today? What percentage of that media is American versus indigenous versus Chinese? Then to look in 20 years, what percent is American indigenous versus Chinese? My guess is that in those regions, America either stays the same or grows over the next 20 or 30 years, while China will probably grow, but not nearly as large as America and indigenous, depending on the region, either grows or stagnates or falls. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I want to make clear, I don't think Chinese media is going to have much appeal to most, most of the rest of the world. So yeah, that, that's not what I think. But I do think with development, I do think you can, you can see indigenous, you know, uh, I think you could do, you, it's possible you do, because it's, you know, it's like you're at a level of development and, you know, you don't have any movie industry, you don't have any TV industry at all, you know, what your lowest move development. And then, and then as it, you know, as you rise up a little bit, maybe you get things more catered to your local tastes. You know, I think that something like that has happened with the Nigerian movie industry, something like that happened with the Indian movie industry. Yeah, definitely don't think it's all going to be Mandarin Chinese. I just think it's, I think it's a basic human thing that, you know, Americans don't want to watch a movie that's, you know, um, set in China with all Asian characters. I mean, they want to see things that they can relate to and people who look like themselves. And I think, you know, there's a reason that uh, American movies dominate Europe in a way that they don't dominate uh, uh, East Asia. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's a fascinating discussion. We got a little bit uh, off track from um, charter cities, but I, you know, I think it's worth, uh, you know, I think it's, you know, worth sort of exploring the sort of a, a more philosophical, you know, under underpinnings of your of your worldview. Um, do you have any? I mean, do you have any advice? So, uh, you know, me and you are a little bit similar in that we're both we both started out thinking about an academic career. We sort of both became uh, kinds of intellectual entrepreneurs. Uh, do you have any advice for anybody out there who maybe is thinking about academia or who's been to academia in academia and who wants to go out there and do something else? Would you encourage? I mean, would you tend to encourage that? And if so, like, is there any general advice you can give? Yeah. Um, well, if you're considering academia, my advice would be don't. Um, if you're considering uh, like what an alternative looks like, I think that is much more difficult. I was definitely lucky. Um, I think things have worked out fairly well. I also worked pretty hard and I think was reasonably careful about my decisions, but I was definitely lucky as well. The way I think about it is over the next, well, like one, just thinking about a basic U.S. context, right? U.S. college age population peaked three years ago. It is now in decline. You have Republican governors who have basically declared war on universities um, because university departments tend to be very highly democratic. Those wars will probably continue. The universities are probably going to lose, at least on some margin. Um, so just from a purely like in self-interest perspective, universities are probably not a good place to be. Um, the other kind of broad piece of framing advice I would think about is we're in the mid-stage of um, 
the internet as an industry. So industries, if you look at electricity, right, it took 80 years to go from like first switch and lights to like widespread penetration in, um, at least in the U.S., in rural areas. Uh, the, the, the internet will probably be about the same, right, with a 60 to 80 year time horizon. We're about 30 years in to the internet. Uh, so that means we have another probably 20 to 40 years left. Um, and so what I would do is identify an area that is in somewhere related or adjacent to the internet that is in a growth phase and just become a expert in that. And it would be very difficult the first two to three years. But if you have the right ideas and if you engage the right stakeholders, after struggling initially, you will it will become very, very lucrative. And you become a relevant expert in that. You become the person who knows everything about that. You make the right relationships. And given the fact that we're still in a growth phase of a major industry, if you carve out that niche for yourself, it will be it will be very promising. So that's my advice. Yeah, that, 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 that's great. Yeah, and I, I think I would second that. And I would think I would also second, you know, academia is not only is not only I mean, people see the political bias there. But you know, if you think you're going to go in there and explore big questions, you know, if you think like you're going to sacrifice some other things for that, like you're often not going to be able to do that. So, for a career, so then, you know, then, you know, there's a lot of good reasons not not to go into academia. Uh, so yeah, so uh, you know, before you before I let you go, um, I just want to ask. So what is the what is the sort of um, optimistic case when do you expect or hope to have you know a functioning city what's the what's the pessimistic scenario you know the the 10th percentile the the median scenario that you imagine and say uh the 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 best the best you could hope for you know the 90th 95th percentile in the next say five ten years yeah so worst case scenario is there's basically i don't know regional war with china probably over taiwan and a massive rise in interest rates and global financial markets are fucked. And then even if tourists are viable projects, one, there's no energy or interest. And then two, there's no capital for them. Um, and that uh, the kind of regional conflict doesn't keep me up at night. The rise in interest rates does a little bit. I don't actually know how to think about it or account for it. So please help. Um, median scenario, which is likely to happen, right? When do we get the first 100,000 person city? Probably in 15 or so years. Um, right, The first charter towns already exist. Um, optimistic scenario probably takes 10 years, maybe even less. Over the next one to two years, we expect several major charter cities projects to be announced or countries to announce charter cities legislation. Uh, and I think that that is quite likely in five years. Um, having, I don't know, a handful, six projects, 12 projects with target populations of like 5 million people, uh, something around those lines in 10 years, um, I don't know, half million, maybe a million people living in charter cities with total target populations, 20 million or so um, with substantial legal autonomy. And I, I think right within the next two or three years, we'll get like, I don't know, momentum where we'll get a handful of other announcements. We'll get a lot of energy. We'll get a lot of interest. We'll attract a lot of talent. In five years, there should be sufficient proof of concept what that means is like projects that are on the ground that are uh, investing where they're meeting their milestones and really succeeding in a kind of relatively public way and attracting not just talent to build the cities, but talent to work in the cities. Uh, and in 10 years, it'll be a like not mature industry, but at least like not a early stage speculative industry where it will be accepted as a alternative form of governance and it will be largely working. 
Okay, great. Well, thank you very much, Mark. I mean, if people want to be involved, if they want to follow along with you, uh, you know, what do you recommend? I know you're on Twitter. Uh, How else can people be in touch or get involved if they want? Yeah, so Twitter, Mark at cci.city or cci.city for the account. We're on Facebook. We're on LinkedIn. We have a newsletter. You can sign up on our website. We are currently hiring. I think we have six job positions open. So please check out our careers page on our website. Um, email me. My email is online, so I will, might respond if you email me, but I'm not going to say in this podcast. If you really want to, I'm sure you can find it. Uh, and um, yeah, looking forward to hearing from you. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, I appreciate what you're doing. I'm glad, you know, I'm glad you weren't a very uh, good uh, economist because it seems like you're doing something that's idealistic and I think has the potential to change the world. So, so good luck to you. Th- thanks, Mark. Thanks for being here, Mark. Uh, thanks for having me on.